We're continuing in Matthew, so if you have a Bible, you can open uh, in Matthew 26, chapter 26. We'll go ahead and pray and then and jump in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Um, I, I pray, God, as we look at this particular text, <clears throat> that it wouldn't be something that we come to lightly as we, week in, week out, have been looking at the passion narrative uh, the last couple of days of your life, that we wouldn't allow our minds and hearts to find this as rote or things that we've already kind of heard and and not listened, but instead consider your word as inerrant and profitable for teaching and rebuking and leading us into righteousness and that there's things in here that you want us to see. There's things in this text today that you want to speak to us with, that you want us to uh, fall in love with Christ more, to see his glory, to live for you more. So I pray, God, as we're going through this passion narrative over these nine weeks, that you would make it fresh for us every week and use it in our lives for your glory. I pray for us all that as we think on the gospel as believers and unbelievers, for those that are not Christians, God, that you would regenerate their hearts, that you would open their eyes so they see and understand what Christ has done and trust him. And for those that are, God, as we look at this text today, it's a great reminder of what the ground and foundation of our sanctification is, which is your finished work on the cross. I pray that as we examine it, Lord, that it would be um, obvious and that it would lead us to want to live for you and understand what it means to be a believer that still continually trusts in the gospel. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and read the text to us so that we can uh, kind of all be on the same page. And then we will uh, we'll go ahead and start going through it. You'll see it, we start in verse 57 today. And then we're going to go through 75. It's kind of a big chunk, but we, we can do it. Um, let's, look at, let's look at the text together and then we'll, we'll kind of take it through. It says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the whole chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, quote, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days, close quote. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. Verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystander, and she said to the bystanders, "This man was with Jesus of Nazareth." And again he denied it with an oath, "I do not know the man." After a while, the bystanders came up. I'm sorry. After a while, a by, the bystanders came up and said to him, "Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you." Then he began to invoke a curse on himself, and and to swear, "I do not know the man." And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The, uh, the text, of, as we've been showing um, over and over, and really all of the book of Matthew, and really all of the Bible, um, is written very intentionally. So as they write, the writers put sections of Scripture intentionally with other sections of scripture so that we can see things. And just an example, as we saw this back in Matthew 26, um, we saw that there's preparations for the birth of Jesus. I'm sorry, it's preparations for the death of Jesus. And in verse 1 through 5, really 3 through 5, we see wrongful preparation, plotting and planning. And then in verse 14 through 16, Judas wrongful preparation, wanting to have illegal gain. But then Matthew kind of 
in, in a very lost-like sense, does a flashback and talks about Mary uh, in Bethany anointing Jesus and sticks that particular story right there in the middle of it in verses 6 through 13 and kind of lifts it as this is not the right way to pray for, prepare for the birth, death. This is not the right way to prepare for the death, but this is. And so over and over we see those kinds of things. We can see it another time right as he's ending verse 13. He says, when the gospels proclaimed, the memory of what Mary has done will be told and it'll be a glorious thing. She'll be held in high esteem. And then right after that, verse 14, he talks about Judas. So in contrast, whenever the gospel's told, whenever the story is told of Jesus, this man will be held in derision. And so over and over we see, um, and I've tried to show those connections as often as I can, um, how Matthew is intentionally laying out, another example, as, as we see the Passover there in verses 17 through 25, right after that, he does the, what would be the kind of a new Passover with the Lord's Supper. Same thing today. As we're looking at 57 through 75, we're going to see two interrogations. The first interrogation is of Jesus. And in contrast, we're going to see a second interrogation made up of three parts, no doubt, three denials of of Peter. Both of these interrogations, um, they're both affirming truth by an oath. Jesus is going to be adjured by Caiaphas in verses 63 and 64 through an oath, a testimony um, of of the Old Testament. And as he's doing this, uh, he has to uphold what he's going to say there in verse 64, kind of with an oath. But also, Peter as well, he's going to bring down an oath in his second denial. Jesus' oath is proper and true. And in contrast, Peter's oath is a lie. Jesus' oath tells the truth. And as he tells the truth, it brings upon his death. Peter's oath is a lie, and because of that, he escapes death. So we're going to see two contrasting interrogations here as we're looking at this. And as I've said, generally as we're going through this passion narrative, um, we're, go- we're doing this in a way so that <clears throat> we're looking at the outline as the, pa- the narrative unfolds. And as we look at the outline as the way the na- passion narrative unfolds, there'll be good, I'm hoping, uh, challenges and applications to be made in there. So um, I want to go ahead and, and Let's look at that very first one, verses 57 through 68, the interrogation number one, Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest. We'll contrast Peter's in just a second, but uh, I want to see these, these, uh, this first one. And let's just remember, Matthew, as he's writing this particular book, is juxtaposing or putting together these two contrasting um, interrogations purposely so that we'll see Christ as the only hope we have, the Messiah, the King, the Savior, the one who's going to be the, the Savior for us all. And in contrast, Peter, whom we can all kind of identify with as Peter, realizing our only hope is only in the one who's being interrogated in the first one, Christ. And so we can identify with Peter in the second interrogation as the first interrogation upholds Christ as our only hope. So uh, let's look at it at verse 57 through 68. And those, and the those, as we know, is in verse 47. That's the great crowd that came out to get Jesus in the garden. That's all of the people, jailers, officers, chief priests, elders, etc. Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest. Some uh, of your uh, parallel texts may say Annas. Um, Annas was just a, a father or grand, grandfather of Caiaphas, and so it's just kind of the house of Annas. That's why it says Annas and some. Uh, and, and likely he did see him, but he, this Caiaphas was the one that mattered. Here we're going to see uh, the first Jewish trial. After that comes the Roman trial, but they start with the, with the Jewish trial and move out to the Roman trial. And this is, um, this is the, the Jewish trial. Now, it's a false trial. There's a lot of problems with it, but this, this is the uh, Jewish trial that happens here, a false trial, and the Roman ones come in later. Caiaphas uh, had been plotting just two days ago to arrest him. We saw that in verse 3. And here he has Jesus standing before him in Jesus' timing, not Caiaphas. Um, and we need to realize as we look at Caiaphas here and we say, Caiaphas, he's going to adjure Jesus in, chapter, in verse 63. For all intents and purposes, Caiaphas is the guilty party to begin this kind of unfolding dominoes kind of thing, if you will, to say, okay, Caiaphas is definitely guilty for putting Jesus on the cross. D.A. Carson takes one little step back and says, just as guilty as Caiaphas is of putting Jesus on the cross, every single one of us need to realize that we're no different than Caiaphas. Every Christian must admit that we are just as guilty as Caiaphas of putting Jesus on the cross because we've all willfully, willfully decided to go out and sin against God. And so if we want salvation, we're just as guilty as putting him on the cross as Caiaphas. 
Now, it says in verse 57, those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where all the scribes, 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 scribes and elders had gathered. And then verse 58, Matthew's wanting us to see verse 58 because it's going to help us understand that next section in 69. But he wants us to kind of have this little mindset. Okay, Peter's there. It's not like Peter's off in, you know, playing video games at the arcade and then he walks over and gets denied. Like he's, he's, he's there the whole time. Verse 58, and Peter um, was following him at a distance as far as the court of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. So Peter is absolutely present the entire time. He's going to see everything that's going to happen. And so as we get to the denial, we need to realize Peter is not some stranger that's just kind of walked up and has no clue what's going on. Instead, he's there the entire time. As a matter of fact, his entrance into this particular garden, I forgot to say this last service, so you get the extra bonus here um, of this you know, kind of side note, doesn't really matter kind of thing. But in, uh, in John chapter 18, uh, in John chapter 18, verse 16, it says, well, read verse 15 too. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple, the quote unquote anonymous another disciple. And so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. So how did Peter get in there? He was following this quote unquote another disciple. And Peter stood outside the door. And so a lot of people went crazy about whoever the anonymous disciple is. Most people said it was John. Calvin says it's crazy that it's John. Um, even though John, as he writes, likes to keep himself anonymous. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. I don't think it's John, but it really doesn't matter. Um, because we're looking at Peter today. So here we have Peter following in there. He gets in there somehow with this anonymous disciple. And so he's present. He's, he's able to observe observe what's going on. He's got a good view of all that's going to happen to Jesus. And as it literally says, he's going inside and he set the guards to see the end, to see how this thing unfolds in the life of Christ. Now the chief priests and the whole council, if you look down, you probably have a little three beside whole council and you look in your footnotes, it says Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a council of 70 people made up of three different groups. They're kind of the ruling body of the Jewish faith. They're made up of leading priests, they're made up of teachers of the law, and they're made up of elders. In order to have them kind of rule on things, they had to have, this made up of 70 people, but they had to have a quorum. This just means a certain amount of people that was generally, as long as there was 23 there, then they could do it. And that's probably what's there, which means 47 people, if I'm doing my math right, um, weren't there. 47 people. So we can already kind of feel like, okay, this seems a little shady. This is the end, end of the day, into the night arresting Jesus in the garden. They're just grabbing their favorite 23. They know that are kind of deceivers and bringing them. Let's just get the quorum. Let's, let's get what's necessary. We can already start feeling this feels really shady, really shady. So it says when the whole council, and that just means enough for quorum, were there. And we can already see as Matthew is trying to point out, they were seeking false testimony. Now, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is calling the testimony that they're getting false. So it is false. Any testimony that people were given, it wasn't true. Matthew, because he's led by the Holy Spirit as he writes the Bible, says everything they were saying wasn't true. And we just have to take it that that's true. We can, you can go back and listen to the doctrine series on the Bible on why we say that that's absolutely true. 47 members not there seeking with, um, we can see here, seeking false testimony. They already have uh, bad intentions, mal intentions. And we can already, already, already see they're desperate. Like, we've got Jesus here. We've got a quorum. Let's get desperate. Let's try to make something happen. Does anybody have any testimony? Faults or whatever? Bring it. Like, we, we need to do something. This is our chance to get this thing happening. We've got him. He's in the handcuffs. All we need to do is get this trial underway. If we can count him as guilty of something, then we, it can happen. We can kill this Jesus. What we're going to see as we're looking at this is the hard-heartedness of these people, of, of the people that make up the Sanhedrin. It's going to become, I think, painfully obvious to them, and it already has been, that Jesus is the Messiah. But they don't care. They care about themselves and self-preservation and power over anything that has to do with seeking out truth. And it says they're seeking false testimony so that they might put him to death. They want a, an accusation to be made to Jesus that leads to death. In our own court system, we understand this, where certain things that people do uh, yield a certain consequence, but certain things that people do yield death. That's what they're looking for. They're not looking for the, the misdemeanors, if you will. They want a charge, an accusation that can stick that yields death penalty. That's all they want. 
So they're looking for false testimony that would bring him to death. But look at verse, the very first part of 60. But they found none. And let's just put it out there. Never could they actually find anything that would actually be true against Jesus. They could still be holding the trial right now. <laughs> and they would not find anything that would literally be true in order to bring them to this conclusion that they can say, all right, now we need death. They found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. You can just hear. Here come another. You got to have two back then for the testimony to be true. All right, let's go. No, that's not true. We can't use that. And it says in verse six, it's like Matthew's wanting us to realize the, the pain that they were going through. At last, two came forward. Now, this is going to begin the snowball and it's going to come in verse 63, 64. At last, like, how about these two guys? They, all the other clowns have been, un, you know, unuseful. How about these two guys? At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. I am able to re- destroy the temple of God and build it in three days. And as they hear this, as Caiaphas hears this, he goes, oh, that's a charge. Of all the charges I can get that yields death, that's one. Let's run with that one. That's one that we're going to try. And so it says in verse 60, this man said, I am able to destroy, 61, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. All right, so let's, let's figure out what's going on with Caiaphas and why he jumps on this and why he takes this as like, uh, let's run with that for a little bit. Let's see what's going to happen. Well, first of all, let's, let's read when Jesus actually said this. We have a recorded instance of it in John chapter 2. This was three years before this trial. We don't know. It's not written, but likely he, he said it some other times. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But we have a recorded instance three years before this where it said, in John chapter 2, starting, we'll start at verse 18. <clears throat> so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for us doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to rebuild this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? What are you, Ty Pennington? How are you going to do that? Um, basically, they don't understand what he's saying. And John, he helps us understand what's going on. Um, you're like, what are you talking about, Ty Pennington? That's that build, move that bus show. Anyway, verse 21, it says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said that they believed scripture and the word not be broken. So he's talking about the temple of his body. I can, you can knock down this temple of my body in three days and I will bring it up again. So clearly we understand he's talking about the, not a building, he's talking about himself. But 2,000 years ago they didn't have the, the cross and resurrection yet happen. And so they're, they're hearing this and they're saying, okay, destroy the temple of God, rebuild it in three days. That is not true. You can't do that. But we can stop and we can say, was this really reason to kill someone? Like he just said, he knocked down a building and rebuild it. Here's why Caiaphas jumped on this. Carson, D.A. Carson, desecration of a sacred place was almost universally regarded as a capital offense in the ancient world. And in this, Jews were not different from the pagans. So saying that you would knock over a temple, desecration of a, of a, of a place, a sacred place, is a capital offense. And so they're jumping on this. Caiaphas is jumping on this, and he wants this to happen. But let's just stop for a second. Let's just realize. Um, they understood what Jesus was actually saying. They understood that this was an illustration of his own body, I think. Because Matthew chapter 27, verse 62. Look at this. These are the, these swindlers, it, it, we're just exposing the wicked hearts right now of the Sanhedrin. Look at this. The next day, this is after Jesus is buried before the resurrection. In that little midday, in Saturday. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, lie, you know he's not, said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. How do you know that? How do you know that? Because he said it over and over, and they knew, even in this case, as he's talking about the temple, that he was talking about his own body, and that he was going to rise. And they don't care. They just don't care. They want to put him to death. So they knew the answer. They understood the illustration. They're just big, fat liars, and they want to kill Christ. Now, verse 62 And the high priest stood up. Jesus doesn't answer. 
and says, Have you no answer to make? What is it that, what is it that these men testify against you? And look at this, verse 63. But Jesus remained silent. He remained silent. He wants a response from Jesus. Did you say you could knock over buildings and rebuild it in three days? These sacred places of consecration that you, you know if you do it, that you're supposed to deserve death? Jesus fulfilling prophecy, Isaiah 53, 7. He was opposed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And when he didn't open his mouth, what did that yield for him? Not opening his mouth, fulfilling prophecy, yet he opened his, he remained silent. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Jesus knew in fulfilling this prophecy, it was certainly leading him to the slaughter. Now, I know you're going to say, Fudd, like two verse, just one verse later, I see red letters. So you say he remained silent. The Bible says he remained silent, but he didn't remain silent. He doesn't remain silent because Caiaphas is going to adjure him um, with an oath. But we'll get to that in a second. But let's just stop here for a second and realize Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by remaining silent. And in remaining silent, he does... He knows that he's got Caiaphas where he wants him. By remaining silent, the trial can't move on. So that particular offense that says <coughs> um, that I can knock down a building because he's remaining silent is not going to stick. And Caiaphas knows this. This isn't going to stick. He's remaining silent. He's not answering. He's not saying, yeah, I can knock down a building and rebuild it in three days. What's up, Caiaphas? He's not doing that. Um, and so Caiaphas knows that his, his ability to put Jesus to death is slipping through his fingers. And so... That's why we move to this next verse, this adjuration of, of Caiaphas, because he needs something. He needs a, an offense that will stick. And so here we see it in verse 63. And the high priest said to him, that's Caiaphas, I adjure you by the living God. I adjure you by the living God. So this is Caiaphas imposing an oath on Jesus. He has to speak now. This is what's known as the oath of testimony. And so now Christ is compelled to be able to have to speak. And I'll get to a reason why. And he says to him, I adjure you by the living God. So he calls down this oath on Jesus, which compels Jesus to have to speak in this particular setting. And this particular, this particular moment is going to be the thing. He's looking for something to be able to bring about death. What's going to happen is going to unfold so that Christ is going to receive the charge of blasphemy. And receiving the charge of blasphemy, now Pilate can give him the death penalty. I adjure you, the Son of the living God, tell us that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus looks at him and says, you have said so. And then he answers. So let's, let's, let's stop here and let's get a little bit of understanding of what's going on. First, the adjuration of Caiaphas towards Christ, commanding him to speak on this oath of testimony by, quote, the Son of the, or by the living God. Caiaphas' actions here are two things. Boyce points out, number one, they're illegal. The high priest was forbidden to intervene in a capital trial. Late at night, just as 23 buddies, no big deal. The other 47 aren't there. We know that Joseph of Arimathea from Luke 22-ish was part of the Sanhedrin. It says that he wasn't there. He didn't get to cast his vote. He wasn't for this thing. So we know that there are people that weren't there that probably wouldn't have gone along with this. Caiaphas got his inner 23. What do y'all say? Let's do this. So he does an illegal act. The only thing he was allowed to do was cast a vote after everybody else has done, not intervene and adjure Christ in this oath of testimony. But he does it anyway. The second thing that he does, number one, is illegal. The second thing that he does is politically genius. In other words, he would be a great American politician. That goes for both parties. But anyway, um, he's seeing that the case was going nowhere because of Jesus' silence. And so he demands to answer on the Israel's oath of testimony and this is what's going to be the thing that causes Jesus now to receive the charge of blasphemy. Not a true charge, but receive the charge of blasphemy. And blasphemy, like knocking down a building, rebuilding it in three days, yields death. So he adjures him. Are you? And then he, he throws out two categories. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And commentators said if he had just said Christ, then Jesus could have gotten out. If he just said Son of God, he couldn't have got out because he says both, and Jesus is going to affirm both. That's going to bring the charge of blasphemy for sure. And so he, uh, he tells him that he has to speak now. Now, uh, here's why Jesus has to speak. Number one, a legally imposed oath was given. And so if he doesn't uh, follow it, he breaks the law. Jesus doesn't break the law, right? He's perfect. If he remains silent and breaks the law, then everyone's going to think he's a big fake. And so he has to speak here. And so interestingly, I mean, this is just interesting words that he says. Very, very curious. So he looks at him and he says, 
you have said so. This is the exact same words that he says to Judas in verse 25. Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? Is it me, Lord? And then is it me, Rabbi? He looks right at Judas and says, you have said so. And it's ambiguous enough that not everybody understood, but Judas understands. And he's saying, basically, it's, I didn't say it, Judas, but you said it, and you know it's true. And here at Caiaphas, says, are you the son of God? Are you the Messiah, the Christ? And he looks at him, he says, you have said so. I didn't say it, Caiaphas. You said it, and you know it's true. Interesting little phrase there that it, as Matthew, and I don't think there's any, like, mistake here. As Matthew writes, he's wanting us to think about, oh, he just said that to Judas, and now he's saying it to Caiaphas. The two men, instrumental bringing about the death of Christ, more than anybody else, humanly speaking, um, in this particular narrative. You have said so, but... He follows up. You can see this, but I tell you, and he's got a good four lines that he wants, to, he wants to say to him. Because, here's why. Instead of just saying, you have said so, Jesus understands that Caius' understanding of the Messiah is fundamentally flawed. He has a wrong understanding and wrong view of who the Messiah is. And so Jesus wants to say, yes, you have said it so. You said it, not me, and you know it's true. But let me just give you a little bit of knowledge, Caiaphas, so that you can actually know who I am when I say who I am, because you don't understand who I am. If I say yes, you just think this is kind of low view of the Messiah. I want to elevate your thoughts way up to the sky so you understand what you're doing and who I am. So here he goes. And he says, you have said so, but I tell you, this is crazy. From now on, you will see the Son of Man invoking Daniel 7.13, We're going to look at it in just a second. The Son of Man text. Seated at the right hand of power, invoking Psalm 110.1, talking about being seated. And he says, coming on the clouds. Now, it's interesting. He says, seated on the right hand of power, because usually we think seated at the right hand of the Father. But he says, power, just helping us understand that Jesus is equal with the Father and has just the same amount of equal power, infinite, eternal, never-ending power as the Father. And he says, coming on the clouds of heaven, bringing back us to Daniel 7, 13. So let's, let's look at both of those particular texts so we can see, because we've got to remember, Caiaphas, remember the Sanhedrin, absolutely knew um, his Old Testament, knew everything that Jesus is saying as he's saying in these moments. He doesn't have to big, do a big unpack of the scriptures. This is enough to help Caiaphas understand exactly who Jesus is saying he is. I am both the Christ and I'm the Son of Man. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hands until I make your enemies your footstool. Now Christ quoted this later on in the book of Matthew. But he's saying, the one that sits at the right hand of the Father is co-equal with the Father. He is the Messiah, the King. He is the one that is the Lord King and will receive the kingdom one day. Not just some kind of tiny geographical kingdom like people have, but literally every piece of soil on the entire earth is his kingdom. That's big. That's not, you know, like Vladimir Putin, right? By the way, that's a funny name. I said it to my four-year-old yesterday. I said, Vladimir Putin, we were talking, and she even laughed. She said, ha, 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 Putin. And so she even knows that that's a funny name. Anyway, back to the text. That had nothing to do with anything. It just popped in my head. Um, So anyway, so Jesus is saying here that he is the king, and we see that in, in Psalm 110, but also in Daniel um, verse, chapter 7, verse 13, it says this. <clears throat> I saw in the night visions. Everyone in the Old Testament, uh, that's an Old Testament scholar, especially these high priests, understand the implications of Daniel seven thirteen. They knew this text well, the coming Messiah and who he was. And he says, behold, with the clouds of heaven. So he's using this, this illustrations for when he's talking about I'm coming on the clouds from Daniel. There came one like the Son of Man. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And he says, I, you will see the Son of Man. So he's saying, I am the one from Daniel seven thirteen, And he came the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. So I want to make sure, Caiaphas, you understand. When you ask if I'm the Christ, the Son of God, I want to give you the full-orbed picture of who I am. Yes, I'm the Christ. I'm the Lord seated, seated at the right hand of the Father. Everything's at my footstool. I'm the Lord, King, Reigner, and I'm receiving the kingdom one day. I'm also the Son of God that's spoken of in Daniel 13, the Son of Man, seated in the clouds. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's going to die for the sins of his people, and I will be, just like in Psalm 110, 1, exalted at the right hand of the Father forever. Now you know who I am. That, I mean, Caiaphas here, no doubt, understands who he is. <laughs> so just what he does 
just shows me even more the hard hardness of him. Like, he doesn't care what he, what he hears. He wants to kill Christ, and that's it. Jesus has dramatically now self-disclosed himself here to the authorities because he, he's being forced to speak. And as he does this, he reveals who he is, but turns it on Caiaphas and gives him a little bit of a threat. In the end, Caiaphas, is going to go bad for you. Like, whenever I'm ruling over everything at the right hand of the Father with all power, you're going to know that what you're doing right here is treacherous. So he's the man. Jesus is the man. Like, we know that, but it's just, it's pretty cool. And then, from now on, from this moment, as we're moving into all the things that are going to unfold over these next couple days, you're going to realize I'm the king, messiah, sovereign judge, and I have far more power than you could ever conceive. I'm going to be in the clouds. Now, Spurgeon says, if he had not been God incarnate, he would have been guilty of blasphemy, as he says this. But the charge of blasphemy isn't true because everything he just said is absolutely true, but they all hear what they want, so they charge him with blasphemy. Christ's words proved that he was the Son of God and not a blasphemer, but his confessions to his enemies give them the opening that they're seeking. Because immediately as he said that, the high priest tears his robes. Now, we don't do this, right? We shouldn't. Um, whenever we, we hear things that we don't like, uh, this is kind of the, the thing. Whenever they, it's an expression of indignation. I don't like what you're saying. I think that's heresy. The standard of what you're saying, I don't think it's true. Therefore, I'm indignant. And so to show you I'm indignant, I just tear my clothes off. Praise God we don't do that. It's a little strange, but that's just what they did. Um, now, we know that this is stupid that he does it because Jesus tells the truth. But the high priest, as a, as a way to display to everyone in the room that he's indignant, he doesn't agree with what's saying, he tears his robes and he says, what further witnesses do we need? We don't need anything else. What you've heard is blasphemy. What's y'all's judgment? And so they say, our judgment is that he deserves death. Now, why does he deserve death? Leviticus. Chapter 24, verse 16, is the verse. He's been waiting for this moment. Um, Caiaphas has. He's been waiting on a charge that yields death. And Jesus, in, in Caiaphas's mind, has broken the law of Leviticus 24, 16. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. Caiaphas is like, got a verse, got a blasphemer, put it together, put him to death. It's done now. It's on. I've got it. And so that's why he says, what's your judgment? And they all say, his, his inner 22, I guess, because he's the 23rd, um, say, he deserves death. Now, let's stop here before we get to this, this disgusting degradation that Jesus feels and not miss this. Everything thus far that has happened, has happened because of Jesus. He's in complete control here. Nothing is happening that he didn't plan on. He knows exactly what he's doing as the whole council yells out, he deserves death. Thus begins this degradation. That's him being degraded. Then they spit in his face. They struck him. They hit him hard. They slapped him. I mean, is that any more insulting? That crosses all cultures. You slap somebody in the face, they know they've been insulted. And then they're saying, as they're mocking him, saying, prophesy to us, because they blindfolded him. The other parallel texts say that. Christ, who is it that struck you? Now, I just want to think about this degradation here for a second. They believe that the real Messiah would not endure this. The real Messiah would not let people spit in their face. He would just crush them, like, instantly. You know? They believe he's not real. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he takes on the embarrassment. He takes on the shame. He takes on the degradation. Why does he do that? Don't miss this. He does it for us. Every single one of us, because of our willful sin deserves this kind of degradation. This is the beginning. I know there's, there's this beatings and spittings and all that. And then we have him on the cross bearing the weight of trying to be asphyxiated. And, not, and then all comes all the wrath of God. And all of this is what Christ is doing for us. And this is the beginning points of it. And all of this is what we rightly deserve. We do rightly deserve 
all kinds of wrath, punishment for our willful disobedience. And these are the beginning stages of all that Christ will endure. This is really our degradation that Christ is taking for us. I'm not saying you deserve to be spit on. What I'm saying is you and I both deserve death. Every single one of us. And Christ is coming and taking this for us. They believe Jesus is scum. That's why they're spitting on him and slapping him. They believe he really had no power. They would never really do this if they thought he was the Messiah. They believe he had no power. And Jesus absolutely could have crushed them at any moment. They believe, as they're insulting him, mocking him, saying, prophesy who's the Christ that struck you. There's a verse in Isaiah 11, 1 through 4, that says that he doesn't even need sight to judge people. And so they blindfold him and they're hitting him and saying, you don't need your sight, so tell us who hit you. And it's true. As Jesus, as we've read before, walking through the crowds, the woman with the issue of blood comes up and touches just his robe and he's walking, he's, he doesn't need sight. Power went out of me. Who touched me? He knew who touched him, right? He's Jesus. And so as they're doing this, as they're striking him in the head, the reality is he knew every single person and as they were doing it, he knew their parents. He created them. He put the numbers of hairs on their head. He loved them. He put his image in them and made them image bearers so they can reflect Parts of God's character in their life. He helped them understand what love is. He helped them know who their children were. He knew everything about them. And as they're saying and mocking him, tell me who hit you. The answer is Jesus absolutely knew. Just like he knows us. That intimately and deeply. He knows everything about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. Just like he knows these people. And he's receiving what should be our degradation. He's receiving what should be our mocking, what should be our beatings, what should be really our death. That's the first interrogation. And Matthew holds that up in contrast to the second. Jesus, because he tells the truth, receives death. Peter, because he lies, escapes death. But as he escapes physical death, he has not escaped spiritual death. His only hope is Christ, just like all of us. So we can definitely identify with Peter. Now, don't miss verse 58 as we go into 69. Verse 58. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat at the guards to see the end. Everything that has just unfolded. The adjuration, the lies, the false testimony. Can you just imagine as people one after another come up before Jesus and just lie about Jesus? He did this. He did that. I mean, Jesus is just thinking, I mean, in my own mind, I'm thinking humanly, why would you keep lying about me? Why does everybody hate me? Why are they doing this? Money's behind it all. Likely, commentators are saying, they're finding the right set of people and then paying them off for their testimony. And so just the, the sadness that Christ, the, the man of sorrows that he was, he felt every possible pain, even seeing people just lie to his face about who he was. Peter, at a distance, is hearing and seeing every one of these things happen. He's not like, out in the dark, he sees all the false accusations. He hears Jesus not stop them. He hears Jesus keep silent. He hears the adjuration. He hears the declaration of that he is the Son of God, the Messiah. He sees them hitting and slapping Christ. He hears the insults about saying, prophesy who hit you. He hears it all. And he's sitting outside. And so certainly fear is just mounting in the heart of Peter. He sees that interrogation. Here comes his. He has all this fear mounting. Yes, he declared in verse 33 and 35, I'll never leave you no matter what happens. But here, his heart's exposed. He does fear for his life. And we see here in verse 69, and Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him. Now, I want to show you the, the contrast here, just how deep it is. G interrogation one, Jesus before Caiaphas, the high priest. Interrogation two, Peter before the servants of the high priest. The parallel texts show us that as Jesus is before the actual high priest, Peter's still going to be interrogated by servants of the high priest. And so the contrast still kind of remains there where Peter's going to be in the parallel text we see. This says servant girl, and it says in 71, servant girl and bystanders um, in the last section. These are all servants likely of the high priest. The, these, this is what the parallel texts say. And it says, and the servant girl came up to him and said, you were also with Jesus the Galilean. When he says Galilean, when she says Galilean, this is a, a, a term of derision. This is derogatory remark. Um, 
this is saying basically, to, to give you an equivalent, we in the South kind of think of it this way. Um, unless you're from the, uh, the true nine southern states, and you're from any other part of America, we just call you a Yankee. Like, we don't know where you are. We just, you're a Yankee. You're not from the South, these true nine southern states. And so you're just a Yankee. And now we kind of know that's kind of derogatory towards you, but we all kind of worked through it over the last couple hundred years. But it's a derogatory remark, no, no doubt. Anyway, um, and that's what's going on here. In other words, Peter is a Galilean. We're in Jerusalem. Everybody here is either a member of the high priest or part of Jerusalem. And then here's Peter the Galilean who stands out. Like, you know that song, one of these people doesn't fit in or whatever it is. I don't know the song. But like, one of them's not like the rest or whatever it is. But here he is, like Mr. Peter, the Galilean. Everybody's not Galilean. And he's standing here. Everybody knows he's Galilean. And she looks at him and she says, um, weren't you with Jesus the Galilean because you're Galilean? And he looks at him, looks at the girl and he says, I don't know what you mean. What are you talking about? So, so the first denial we have, servant girl calling him the derogatory term of Galilean. And Ma- Matthew, he says, I don't know what you mean. And Mark, he literally says, I don't even know or understand what you mean. What are you saying, Galilean? Me? Hmm, no, I'm, I'm just like all y'all. Although it's painfully obvious to everybody, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not like us at all. So just a dumb lie. I mean, just a dumb lie. And Luke, he says, woman, I don't know him. Johnny says, I am not. And so first denial, obvious that Peter doesn't, uh, he's the, he is a Galilean, he's with Jesus the Galilean, everybody knows that he's there. He stands out and still just says, I don't even know or understand what you're saying, servant girl. And then that moves us into the second one. But before that, it says in verse 71, and he went out to the entrance. And so what happened here, as we look at some of the other texts, is that that first denial happened. Peter realizes, I'm probably a little too close. That, you know, light was the, uh, the key ingredient at nighttime to be able to do stuff. And so he's around a fire. He's warming himself. Everybody can see. So he's like, I probably should move away from the fire, get a little bit more in the shadows. Um, and that's where we like, we like to hide stuff in the shadows. So he, he hides back in the shadows. He doesn't want to get sought out after again, just exposing the sinfulness of our hearts. We're just like him. We like to be in the shadows and don't let our sin be shown. So he goes out to the, to the shadows just a little bit more so that no one comes up to him. He doesn't have to tell another lie. And it says in verse 71, uh, and another servant girl, the, the, the wording of that makes us realize that it's connected to the first servant girl. They're very similar. So she's another servant of the high priest. Um, comes up to him and said uh, to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. So he calls down an oath this time. Now, <clears throat> I know y'all all remember the Sermon on the Mount when we're looking at Matthew 5. Peter certainly knows this teaching that he gave in Matthew chapter 5. This was, this was the wrong deal. This is the wrong move. Matthew 5, 33. Again, you've heard it of all of those who have said, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. So he, Peter's breaking a commandment here. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven or the throne of God or earth or the footstool or by Jerusalem for that city is the great king. Do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one. Anyway, don't take oaths. And in this particular moment, Peter, the servant girl comes up to him and says, you're with Jesus of Nazareth. And to kind of strengthen his, his previous, like, what do you even mean? I don't know what you're saying. I'm going to call down an oath and say, I definitely am not him. Um, I don't know what you mean. Uh, he says it in Mark 14 says Peter denied it. Luke 22, he says, I am not with an oath calling down a curse on his head if he's lying. So a, a second servant girl comes in that second denial. And then we move into the third one. This is where it gets even more um, telling. After a little while, the bystanders came up. Who are the bystanders? Who are the bystanders? In a parallel text, John 18, as he's telling the story, Remember when Peter got a little antsy last week and decided to swing for the fences and he cut off Malchus's ear? Um, this bystander that comes up to Peter this time is a relative of Malchus. So like, I, you just cut my cousin, or whatever, just his relative, you just cut my cousin's ear off like just a couple hours ago. I know it's you, is basically what's going on here. After a little while, the bystanders came up to him and said, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. In other words, like, I used to work for Charleston Southern, and one day uh, I got sent up to Rhode Island. I think it was Rhode Island. It was way up there in, in New England. And so while I was there, I was there for a few days, and I'm starving. I go to the mall, and as I eat, and, you know, just like Peter the Galilean, I'm standing out. I go to the food court, and I order, and as I order, they just stop me and they say, can you keep talking? 
like, you sound funny. And, and actually, they said, can you keep talking? I can't do it. But they said, they said it in this funny kind of voice. Can you? And I'm like, that's not funny. Yeah, I want my burger or whatever I'm, I'm ordering. And I'm like, anyway, I'm the one that talks normal. And all of y'all talk weird. Um, but anyway, so that's what's going on here. Like, when you have a different accent, when you're from Galilee and you're not from here, you talk different than everybody else. And they're like, okay, look, dude. I know you said, I don't even know what you mean or understand, but you're saying it in your Galilean accent. (laughs) Like, we know that you don't belong here. We realize that you were with Jesus the Galilean. What are you talking about? Certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you, this relative of Malchus said. And then, notice what he does. He calls down an an oath, and then he begins to cuss like a sailor. Then he said, that's just a saying we say, if you never heard that. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. So he's just letting it fly. Just notice how it intensifies in these denials. How he's trying to self-persevere, persevere, save himself. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. So as Peter is in the olive garden, he cuts off the, 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 the guy's ear. And then the relative of Malchus here, as he's here at this courtyard says i know it was you certainly you're one of those because of your accent he's cussing he's swearing he says i don't know the man i don't know the man you're talking about i don't know what you're talking about and then it says this and immediately matthew i mean doesn't want us to skip a beat in the same little breath and immediately the rooster crowed like we're all supposed to be like oh yeah i remember that He told him in verse 34, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And immediately as he said this third one, as he's cussing and screaming, said, I don't know the man. There it is. And and in this moment, Peter fulfills or um, lives out this particular verse in 1 Corinthians 10, which says this. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. None of us, none of us are out of the realm of a possibility of any sin. And as soon as we think we got it, we don't got it. As soon as we think we don't need Jesus, we absolutely need Jesus. We take heed. We think we're going to stand. And in that moment, right here, as soon as he says the third one, bang, the rooster crowed. Now, here's where it gets really interesting. Matthew just goes to 75, but Luke in verses 74 and 75 spreads it open and sticks a little sentence right there in Luke chapter 22. This is what Luke says. As soon as the rooster crowed, Luke twenty-two sixty-one 61 says this right here. Don't miss this. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Like the moment the rooster crowed, he's calling down curses. I don't know the man. The rooster crows and it says Jesus locked eyes with him. Peter, remember what I told you? All of it happened. I mean, can you just imagine the Son of God, Messiah? I'm never going to do it, no matter what happens. Verse 33, 35. As soon as the rooster crows, Jesus, the first set of eyes he locks eyes with, bang, there's Jesus. Looks him right in the eyes. Man, that's some heavy stuff. Presumably, Jesus looked at him right instantly. Maybe he was being escorted through the courtyard as he's being detained. Spurgeon says, Luke tells us that the Lord Christ looked at Peter. Peter must have looked then up the lo- at the Lord at the same time or not have seen that look of sorrow in Jesus' face, that look of pity and the look of love and forgiveness that the Lord gave him. If any one of us has denied the Lord that bought him or her, let him or her, just like Peter, look up to Christ now who is in heaven, ready to pardon and ready to forgive. I love Spurgeon. He's so good, right? I mean, he's, he's maybe putting a little bit more in the text. But the application is absolutely true. Any person here who's in Christ, who knows they are in a rampant life of sin and just feel like there's no way that you can receive the forgiveness of Christ, he's saying he is adjuring you with truth. Look up to Christ who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And with the same looks of love and forgiveness he gives to Peter, he will give to you. He will forgive you. That's what the gospel is all about. But right whenever Peter, I mean, it all, the the weight of this, of denying God himself. I mean, Peter's already declared it in Matthew 16. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Where else do I have to go? I got nowhere else to go but you. And then all that crushes down. He 
The rooster crows, he looks right into his Savior's eyes, and the weight's too much for him to bear. And it says, and immediately, he remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. And it says, and he went out and wept bitterly. Mark says, literally, he broke down and wept. This is just an emotional, draining, sobbing that's hard to even conceive of. Because he remembered just as vehement as he was in verse 33 and 35, I'll never do it. It all came true. And he broke down and wept bitterly. So, as we're looking at this, I think the best thing that we can do then, by means of conclusion, is say, how can we learn? If we're going to associate ourselves with Peter and realize that we're like him, and our, we're, because we're like him, we have to say, my only hope is Christ, the one who went through interrogation, if you will, the way that's honoring, and I have to say that's my only hope. Why did Peter fail? Let's look at some things. Now, we're just looking at um, instances in his life. We know that ultimately he didn't. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But in this moment, why did Peter fail? Because in our moments in sanctification, we don't want to. So let's look at some things. Peter didn't believe Jesus' warning. First reason he failed, he didn't believe Jesus' warning when he said, you will all fall away because of me this night. I'm warning you, you're going to fall away. He didn't believe his warning. Instead, he said, I know better. So that just begs the question for us. What warnings are you not believing? Warnings and commands that he gives to you. What does sanctification look like? That you flee from sexual immorality. That's a warning. Are you fleeing from sexual morality? Or warnings about being honest with your spouse. Warnings about loving your children well. There's all kinds of warnings all over the scriptures. Which ones are we guilty of ignoring? How are we like Peter saying, I don't need to believe your warnings. I got this. And as we said, as soon as we think we got this, we don't got this. He didn't believe Jesus' warnings. The next one is, he looked down on the other disciples. He looked down on them. He thought they were not good. We can see that as he's looking there in verses 33 and 35, where he says, Um, Though they all fall away, I won't because of you. He thinks that they are just not very good. He thinks he's better than them. We should have a correct view of ourselves. We shouldn't think that we're better than others. And then kind of in that same vein, the third reason why he failed, he had not only did he look down on them as far as his view of himself, he had an inflated opinion of himself. We see that he was very unaware of his weaknesses. Very unaware of his weaknesses. How are you unaware of your weaknesses? Let me, let me offer this to you. Um, the way that you are going to become most aware of your weaknesses, and I, I would argue, biblically, your charge to become most aware of your weaknesses is in the context of the local church. This is what I'm saying. I know that as Christians, we have the gospel. We have the good news that we can preach to ourselves, which I tell you all, all the time. Believe who you are in Christ. Believe that there's no condemnation. I know that you have the Holy Spirit guiding you and leading you into all truth, um, convicting you of your sin, etc. But I also know, I think most Christians say, I don't have to be in the church. I can attend on Sundays. I can do the deal. I can be there, sing the songs. But as far as my own Christian sanctification, as far as my own life, I've got the gospel. I've got the Holy Spirit. And I come on Sundays. That's all I need. I'm good. And I think we're unaware of our weaknesses if that's the way we're going to live out sanctification. Because biblically, that's not all there is. Biblically, we also have the church. And I think that a lot of people just forsake that and say, gospel, Holy Spirit, I'm good. And don't say church. In other words, community. Other people who also have the gospel to bring it to bear on your life, who also have the spirit, who also know you and are willing to, because they love you, speak into your life and say, I see this. I see weaknesses that you don't see. I see blind spots that you don't see because they're called blind spots. You don't see them. And we are missing out. And I think, I wouldn't call it sin, but I would, I would bump it up into that category close. If we're not in community, we're missing 
all that Christ has designed for us when it comes to sanctification. If we really think it's just gospel and Holy Spirit, and I'll just go to church on Sunday, you're missing what Christ has designed for you to grow in your holiness. He's also given you the church. You will never become aware of your weaknesses. You will always have an inflated opinion of yourself until you let people come around you and live your life with you and be able to point out weaknesses. No, this is not what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that day one you come up to you and say, could you for the next two years point out every flaw in my life? I just need to be cut down every moment. I'm not saying that, right? I'm not saying destroy me daily so that I feel like I'm worthless. I'm not saying that. I'm saying as you come into the lives of people and you become real friends with them, you hang out with them, you trust them, you love them. Over a period of time, you know them. You know they mean you no harm. You know they love Christ. You know they love the gospel. You know that they live a life trying to pursue being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you're in community every day, and you're living on mission, and you're giving to the poor. You're caring for the people. But also, as you're doing that, there's some people in that group that Christ is uniting your souls together in a Christian walk. And this is biblical. This isn't like a third option. You can do this if you want. I think every Christian should have this in their life. You come along people and you say, listen, you you know me pretty well. I I need for you to look into my life. Uh, Maybe I can look into yours. And as we're walking through this, I need for you to point out things in my life. I have weaknesses and blind spots I don't even know about. And yes, I've got the gospel and yes, I've got the Holy Spirit, but God has given us the church. And I need for you to point out things in my life and show me. Peter failed he have an inflated opinion of himself. And yeah, he had people, but we can draw out an application of that, which is we need to be in community. We need to. Or we will fall on our faces. The gospel's big, and the Holy Spirit's awesome. I mean, I'm not trying to discount that whatsoever. You will see successes if you just do those two. But you are, I think, living in a dream world if you think that's, that's what God wants. Chandler says it, I think, great. While our salvation is definitely a personal thing in our life, it's never meant to be private. We're supposed to live our lives in a community of believers. So important that we understand that. Last one, why did Peter fail? Now, he didn't ultimately fail, but he failed in this instance. Why did he fail? Because in this instance, Peter failed to pray. Remember in Gethsemane? Remember 2641? Jesus looked at him and he said, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And in that moment, he's preaching to Peter, teaching Peter, saying, and it's coming up. Pray. Pray. Peter failed because he failed to pray in this moment. He didn't ultimately fail. We're going to talk about that in a second because it's stinking awesome. But what are you not praying about? What are you not praying about? What are you thinking that you can get through life without prayer? Prayer shows us, moment by moment, the real truth, which is that we are desperate for God. We're desperate. If we don't think we're desperate, then we're not praying. The more we pray, the more we realize we're absolutely desperate. Now, Peter failed to pray here, and that's why he failed here. But why did he not ultimately fail? Because we've read the rest of the story, right? We know in John chapter 3, Peter denied, well, in this particular text, John, Peter denied three times. In John chapter, I'm sorry, 21, there's the restoration. Peter, do you love me? No, I do. Peter, do you love me? No, I do. So there's three restorations, and those three restorations kind of match the three denials. And then he says, now you get to go live a life, uh, and you're going to die for me. But he's restored. And we see in just two chapters later in Acts chapter 2, well, Two chapters later, kind of, in Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes, and pre- Peter's the first one. No one gets the privilege, other than Peter, to be able to deliver the Holy Spirit-filled first sermon in Acts chapter 2 to everybody, and 3,000 3, people get saved. It wasn't John. wasn't anybody. Peter was selected at this particular time. So we know that ultimately he didn't fail. But in this moment, he did. Why did he not? This is why, and this is where he gets awesome. In Luke twenty two sixty one, we saw it said, Jesus looked right into his eyes, and he felt the full weight of it. But 30 verses before that, in Luke twenty two thirty one, Jesus, when Peter failed to pray, Jesus prayed for Peter. So he may have failed in the short term because he failed to pray, but ultimately he didn't fail because Jesus prayed for Peter. 
Now, we're going to see the implications for us in just a second. But let's look at this. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Don't kid ourselves and don't think that Satan is not demanding us every moment too. He walks around like a roaring lion in 1 Peter, I think it's 3. He is ready to pounce on us and destroy us. Here, ultimately he didn't fail because Jesus prayed for him and said, I prayed that your faith may not fail. That's good news for Peter, right? But what about us, Fud? Great for Peter. (laughs) Well, here's the awesome part. This is what I'm so excited about. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for you. For you, individually. He prays for you. You might not know this. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when we see, we kind of got that snapshot view of it a couple weeks ago when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. In John chapter 17, we get a deep inside, insider look of this garden prayer that Jesus had. And in that, in John 17, it's called the High Priestly Prayer. And as you read it, John just verbatim gives us a lot of the actual words of of Jesus' prayer. And in verse 20 is where Jesus literally prays for you. So the reason why Peter did not ultimately fail is because Jesus prayed for him. And I think one of the reasons you will not ultimately fail is because Jesus has prayed for you. Now let me explain this. The reason why you will not ultimately fail is because of the gospel. And I want to help you see these gospel implications in this prayer for you. Starting in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. The those is us. Now you can say, oh, that's just kind of a big blanket statement. That's not me. He didn't pray for me individually. Um, yeah, he did. Like, this is Jesus praying for you individually. You can gloss over it all you want, but I'm not going to. Like, this is literally Jesus praying about me. He's praying for me. What does he want for me? Jesus is asking God the Father, beseeching the Father about me. What is it that he's saying? That they all may be one, just as you and the Father and me, and I and you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent us, sent me. So he's saying that he wants all the Christians to be united, and as they're united, they'll be sent out for more effective mission. He wants us to be united. He's praying for you individually to be united so you can be sent out in mission. But this is where it gets awesome. This is the gospel centrality of it. The glory that you've given to me, I've given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. And here it is, the first three words of 25. We can just gloss by it and miss it. But look at this. I in them. And you and me. And he keeps going. The gospel is that Christ, because of his death, burial, and resurrection, when we trust him, is that he literally resides in us. Jesus in us. His perfection has been attributed to us, but we can live out his perfection because Jesus is in us. So as we think about the gospel, the reason why we won't ultimately fail in life is because of the good news that it's not based on our works, but what Christ has done. And we have Christ in us now. As we're walking through sanctification, as we're walking and facing temptations for sin, we don't have to fail like Peter. We can pray and Christ in us can lead us in ultimate victory over sin. Christ in us, as Colossians 1 says, the hope of glory. That's amazing news. In the prayer where he prays for us, he reminds us that he is going to be in us. His perfection in us, as Hebrews 7.25 says, he is able to save you to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Jesus. If we draw near to God, it has to be through Christ. And when we do, he saves us to the uttermost. Saving means he puts all of his perfection in us. And then as that happens, we live out what might be my favorite verse ever. John 3.16 is good, no doubt. Philippians 3.16 rocks my world. It rocks my world. I've probably referred to it billions of times with y'all, but it says this. Don't miss this crazy verse. As Jesus has prayed for us and said, I in them, his perfection is in us. If we have perfection in us, what does that mean then for day-to-day life? What does it mean for when I am tempted like Peter? Look at this. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. What have we, what have we attained? Christ in us, perfection. And so this This word says, let us hold true to it, means we now 
have the God-given through Christ ability to literally hold true to what we have attained. We've attained perfection in Christ, therefore we can hold true to it. I'm not calling for perfectionism, but I am saying we as Christians have the ability to literally kill sin. Non-Christians, they don't have a choice. They will always sin. But we who are filled with the Holy Spirit in these moments of temptation have the ability to shove off the temptation and because of Christ say no and literally pursue what we've already attained, perfection in Christ, Him in us. And here's the the great thing. Ultimately, we won't fail because of the gospel. And as we look at the life of Peter, because ultimately we won't fail, we see this restoration of Peter. Here's the greatest news of it all. You and I have no idea as we're daily restored into the gospel as we're daily restored in the truth of philippians 3 16 like peter we have no idea how he'll use us peter had no idea as he's denying here that just a little bit later he's going to preach and three thousand people are going to get saved he went out he was broken and wept bitterly in his mind it's all over i've I've done it, and I'm done. Restored. Used mightily. I think we need to hear that. We have no idea how God wants to use us. And I would petition your heart to think. It's a lot more than you think. Just consider that the Lord wants to use you far more than you think. Because of Philippians 3.16, you can hold true to what you've already attained in Christ. Oh, that's so beautiful. So we step back here and we see two interrogations and we identify ourselves with Peter. And like Peter, it may break us. It may make us weep bitterly. But also, ultimately, Peter's restored. We have to say, my only hope is Christ. He's everything. I have no other. Where else am I going to go? You're the one that has eternal life, as Peter said in John 6. You're the son, the, the living Christ, as he says in Matthew 16. So, in a lot of ways, we're very much like Peter. We know the truth, and daily we don't live it out. But the good news of the gospel is, we are completely forgiven don't bank your hope on what you do bank it on what what Christ has done and never limit what Christ is going to do through you he can do amazing things through you let's let's worship this great savior that loves us more than we could ever imagine let's pray God thank you so much for your word Thank you that though we all know that we're like Peter, like him, we all realize that we need Christ. Be with us now as we worship. I pray that you would enable us by the Spirit to see and understand greater things of the gospel. And like Peter, we may be broken, but also like Peter, we know that we're restored and we can be used by you greatly. And I pray that because of those truths, we'll stand and worship you this morning. I praise in Jesus' name. Amen.